If you need help finding it, I would suggest that you start by going to the table of contents in your Bible. Let's see if we can find it together. There's Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the Torah. It's not there. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It's not there. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, it's got to be here somewhere. Ezekiel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So it's not in the Hebrew Scriptures. Let's try the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, ha! There it is! <laughs> Revelation. 66 books, one revelation. 66 books, one revelation. Is that clear? This book is about Jesus. The library is about the Lord. The archives are about the Almighty. The manuscripts are about the Messiah. The records are about the Redeemer. The book is about Jesus. Miss that and you will miss the whole thing. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. That phrase, the time is near, does something to a person. I think one of three things. It either engenders excitement, oh, the time is near. Or it, it brings about dread, the time is near. Or there are those who just cast it off, the time is near. But you're going to have a reaction to that. I, I encourage you this morning to measure your reaction to the phrase, the time is near. I am more convinced than ever before that this is true. That the time is near. We draw ever nearer to it. We are far nearer now than we were 13 years ago the last time we looked at this book. The time is near. It's no joke to say, I hope we don't make it through this study. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure we're in the study when Jesus comes. <laughs> Listen to what I like to call the one, two, three punch of biblical truth. Psalm 40, verse 7 tells us, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. 
In John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. And Revelation 19, verse 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. It's all about Him. One revelation. The book is about Jesus. And this book, this book brings all the blessings of the book to bear in one place in the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. So if I hear one more person call it the revelations, one more, so help me, I will gently correct them. It's the revelation, the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. It is given that we might see Him and hear Him and experience Him. Jesus Christ resurrected, exalted, and glorified. That's the point. Don't miss it. Don't miss Him. In fact, look at verse 12 right now. John writes, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. No doubt because someone said revelations. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Oh, to see Jesus. It's it's the hope of anyone who has come to know Him, of any follower, to see Him as He is for who He is. Listen to His voice. Experience His presence. Fall before Him with holy fear. One simple vision of Jesus in His glory will knock the most educated, intelligent, logical, erudite, well-read, scholarly, arrogant brain trust right on His backside. As we saw it knock John off His feet. We all think we, we know so much. We think we're so smart. And then we stand before Jesus and what we need is a little humble, holy fear. To realize how much we lack. And when I say to fear Him, I'm not talking about a fear of what He might do to you, but a fear of who He is, of the person of Jesus Christ. A holy fear. Not a fear that, oh no, oh, I'm so afraid I'm going to be taken apart. No, not if you trust Him. If you trust Him, you have no fear in that way. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Don't fear Him because you're afraid He's going to condemn you. No, not if you know Him. Not if you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. As fearsome and as mighty as He is, if you know Jesus, you see Him, you hear Him, you do so with reverence and affection. With awe and with love. By the way, there's another reason I harp on the singular revelation. And it is this. 
There is no other. There is no other. Back at the end of the book, verse 18, Revelation 22, 18, John writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, and people have, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. There is no other. There is no further revelation. God effectively slammed the door shut on any and all future so-called revelations. After this was written, done. From Muhammad to the Mormons... Even to the social movements of today, any new or additional revelation is subject to this curse. Think about it that way. When someone comes along with a new idea or a new thing that, that contradicts the Bible or that they say is actually a further revelation of Scripture, man, man, you better be careful. You better think twice. Because all the curses of this book are laid at the feet of any teaching that goes beyond this book. That is serious business. We're going to stick very closely to the words of this book. Now there's a way to approach this, and there's an attitude to have when you study the book of Revelation. Charles Reary says, generally speaking, there are two attitudes toward Revelation. Some say the book cannot be understood and therefore should not be studied, taught, or preached. Others consider themselves so sure of every detail in the book that they set dates and propose highly fanciful interpretations. To them, the book of Revelation seems to be the only book in the Bible worth studying. Listen, the right attitude is one of humble acceptance that this revelation is as God intended. He intended us to read it. He intended us to study it. He intended to open things up to us in it. And He intends us just to take Him at His Word. Which is the way all the Bible is. By the way, the entire Scripture is God saying, take me at my Word. That's the right attitude. Humble acceptance. It's Your Word, Lord, and we will take what You say. Riri goes on, he says, let our approach never be theoretical or detached. Rather, personal and involved. And he says, even though this book is largely about the future, knowledge of it should affect our living in the present. This should change us. This should evoke radical change. I was just telling Glenn and Doug earlier, this book changed my life. Teaching through it the first time, and this was, wow, 2001 I think? It was the first time I actually taught through Revelation, and it changed my entire perspective of Jesus, of the Scriptures, of what I was here to do. It's a large part why this church was begun in the first place. It changed everything about me. It, it freaked me out and rolled me over and opened my eyes and, and alarms went off and, and I realized the time is near. And the book should change us. That's the right attitude. There's also a right approach. Now, now there are four approaches and i got to do all this by way of introduction. There are four approaches people will take to this book. There's the preterist. The preterist. I'm, I'm reminded that Rachel and her family, the first time they came to the bridge back in the barn several years ago, the very first Sunday, my teaching was, why AD 70 matters to me. And the whole time I talked about preterism. 
And Rachel to this day tells me she had no idea what I was talking about. She never even heard the word, you know. Preterism. The preterist believes that the revelation is passe. In fact, preterism comes from the Latin word for past. That it's past. It's done. Preterism basically assigns all the prophecies of this book to fulfillment in 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. It all happened then, the preterist would say. And there's full preterism that states that Jesus returned at that time. They believe he actually came back, he judged, he condemned Israel, and ever since we Gentiles have been living in the kingdom, man. May I just say, if this is the kingdom, yeah, I don't want it. This is not the kingdom, my friends. The devil is not chained. What's going on in our world, a week like we've seen, this is not the kingdom. Full preterist says that we are living in the new heaven, the new earth, and that the church is the new Jerusalem. Have you been in the church lately? This is not the new Jerusalem. You and I both know we're a bunch of people doing the best that we can to follow Jesus, thankful for His love and His grace, filled with His Holy Spirit, and still quite messy. It's not the New Jerusalem. Well, that's the full preterism. Then you have people like R.C. Sproul who comes along with partial preterism. They realize they can't go that far. So that they say, they say most of the prophecies were fulfilled in AD 70, to which I ask, how do you know which ones? I mean, if you're going to say some, why not all? And how do you, which ones are you going to choose? Most were fulfilled in AD 70, but they do accept that there's a future second coming and, and a resurrection and judgment. So they'll assign basically the last two, three chapters to the future, but the rest all happened back in AD 70. Now listen to me, for preterism to work, this book, the book of Revelation, would have to have been written and circulated before 70 AD. Right? I mean, that makes sense. If it's prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem, it had to come before the fall of Jerusalem. And the preterists will say that happened around 65. That John received and wrote the Revelation around 65 A.D. Hey, remember our buddies, the early church fathers. I wonder what they said. We've gone back to them a few times recently when when books are criticized or challenged. Hey, go to the earliest witness of that book. Well, we have Tertullian around 200 A.D., Irenaeus around 180, Hegesippus around 150, and then there's Papias who knew John in 100 A.D. These all testified, first off, that John wrote the Revelation, and secondly, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Hegesippus, who I like to call Ira, Tert, and Hedge, all stated within 50 to 100 years of the writing of this book, that he wrote it in 95 A.D. They claim 95 A.D. Again, within 50 to 100 years of the writing. So I got thinking about that. What do we know was written just 50 or 60 years ago, and can we prove it? Do we know for certain, for example, that Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird in 1960? Would anyone question that? It was 1960, man. Joseph Heller wrote Catch-22 in 1961. Who would dispute that? Anyone? How about Eric Carle's 1969 bestseller, The Very Hungry Caterpillar? We all know when it was written. 
by the way, the first time an early date of Revelation was claimed, the first time someone came out and said it, it was around AD 65 and not 95, 500 AD. 500 years after the fact. Some brilliant scholar who already following the Alexandrian school of allegorical thought, which I'll explain in a minute, someone comes along and says, no, no, it had to be written earlier. Well, of course it did for your theology to work. It's like evolution. They keep adding years because the only way for evolution to work is if we've been here billions and billions of years and even then it falls apart. We don't take Scripture and bend it to fit our theology. We don't wrap our theology around it and squeeze it into our mold. This is God's Word. It's not man's Word. And I am absolutely convinced it was written in 95, which completely subverts any idea of preterism. John himself says he received the revelation, this vision, while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. We'll see that down in verse 9, not this morning, but perhaps next week or, or Wednesday night. Exiled on the island of Patmos. So, so think about this with me. In 65, Nero was emperor. In 65, Nero didn't exile people, he executed people. That was his modus operandi. Ask Peter. Ask Paul. Both executed at the hands of Nero. And by the way, someday you'll, you'll be able to ask them. He was an executor. Was there a Roman emperor who persecuted the church and exiled people? Yes, there was. His name was Domitian, and he did that in the 90s. In fact, he ruled until he died in 96. His preferred punishment was by exile, specifically to remote Greek islands like Patmos. John says, I was on Patmos when I received the revelation. For the word of God, I I have been sent there. I was exiled there. So we have external evidence. We have internal evidence. There's even more. But there's another problem with preterism. (laughs) If... What this book describes all came down in A.D. 70. Think with me. When did hail fire mixed with blood burn up a third of the earth? Along with trees and green grass. When was a burning mountain thrown into the sea causing a third to become blood? When did a burning star fall from heaven causing a third of the rivers to become bitter and undrinkable? When did the sun, moon, and stars darken to a third of their brilliance? What army came marching from the east in A.D. 70? Rome came from the west. What two witnesses prophesied from Jerusalem only to be killed, resurrected, and raptured in view, get this, in view of every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth? Did that happen in A.D. 70? What was the mark of the beast? What about the malignant sores on those who took the mark? When did the rest of the seas and rivers and springs become blood? When did the sun scorch men with fire? When did the lights go out on the kingdom and the throne of the beast? When did the Euphrates River dry up? When did Babylon fall? When did all that happen in A.D. 70? It didn't. And yet all of those things are described in this book. We will read about each and every one of these things. Well, you can't take all that literally, Rick. Really? Can you take this literally? 
Matthew 24:29. immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Who saw that in A.D. 70? Nobody. For preterism to work, Jesus Christ would have to be a liar or a deceiver. Well, Rick, you're kind of going after the preterist. Oh, I'm just starting. <laughs> There's the historicist. Second approach to Revelation, you've got the preterist, you have the historicist. This is the person who believes that the Revelation is a grand panoramic picture, if you will, of all history from the first coming to the second coming of Jesus. The problem is, again, it's really hard to identify historical events that fulfill the prophetic visions of this book across history. In the last 2,000 years, when did these things take place? All that I just listed and more, when did it happen? And people say, well, you know, again, you you can't take it all literally. Then there's the idealist. The idealist who would agree, you can't take it literally. He would say, you've got to allegorize the book. I mean, it's it's a great age-long struggle of good and evil, and good wins is kind of a Lord of the Rings for the church. You know, it's just written to encourage us. I mean, you can't take it seriously. It's just full of metaphors, they'll say. Allegories, fanciful symbols and and pictures. Now someone would say, well, wait a minute, though. Aren't there signs? Aren't there allegories? Aren't there metaphors in Revelation? And I would say, yes, there are. Yes, there are. But John always makes it clear when he's painting a picture. Like he will refer to the dragon. And then he'll say, who is the devil? He'll mention the beast, describing him, and then say, now, you know that's Antichrist. He makes clear when he's painting a picture, when he's drawing something, and he does this intentionally because it evokes emotion and grabs our attention. But he's always clear about what are signs and what are specific things and what the signs represent. Hey, remember the 1 to 8 ratio? We talked about this last week. For every one prophecy of Jesus' first coming, there are eight prophecies of His second coming. Listen. Every single prophecy of the first coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled literally. Every single one. We've been over this many times. Where He would be born. What the events would be surrounding that birth. Where He would live Nazareth, where he would shine, Galilee, how he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he would be pierced through for our transgressions, that he would be buried with a rich man, even though his grave was assigned with the poor, literal fulfillment, every single prophecy of Jesus' first coming, fulfilled to a T, exactly as spoken. Why do we think God would change that all of a sudden? I'm going to do all the first coming prophecies literally, but the second coming prophecies, <laughs> they're going to have fun figuring that one out. Let's just mess with them a little bit. Why would we think God would be spurious or inconsistent or arbitrary? Does that sound like the God of the Bible? Which brings me to the fourth and correct approach. I know how that sounds, by the way. 
I know what it sounds like for me to sit up here and tell you the correct approach is this. I'm right than all these other theologians who have studied and have far more degrees and little symbols past their names than I have. How arrogant of you, Rick. It is not arrogant to stand in the truth. And I am telling you what I have studied and what I have seen. And I believe by the time we get to the end of Revelation, sometime in 2025, that that you will see and you will agree there really is only one approach to the book. And that is what we would call the futurist. The futurist. And that is we take the revelation of Jesus Christ at face value. This is the literal position. This is the position in which... The word leads the student, not the student leads the word. We let God teach us. That's how we'll teach it, literally, chronologically, in the plainest sense of the text, unless the text itself or related scripture to it indicates clearly otherwise, and the word is clearly. Let's just let the Bible be the Bible. And look at it for what it says. And if we're confused about something, then we use the best commentary in the world on the Bible, which is what? It's the Bible. Allow God's Word to be God's Word. Well, with all that in mind, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is apocalypsis. In the Greek, it's important to understand that. It means unveiling. The unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's two words, apocalypsis. It comes from kalupto, which is the Greek word to cover or conceal, and apo, to take off. So Jesus is taking off the concealment. He's literally blowing the lid off the end of the age. He blows it wide open. And remember what he said on the night of his betrayal? John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I want you to know. I want you to see these things clearly. I'm going to tell you it all. That's God's intention with this book. Revelation 22 verse 10 even says, Do not seal up the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Keep it open. Don't seal it up, John. Keep it open. Don't hide this away. By the way, that's the opposite of what the angel Gabriel told Daniel. He said, Gabriel, in Daniel 12, verse 4, As for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up this book till when? Till the end of time. He said, many will go back and forth at that time and knowledge will increase. Which is an amazing prophecy in and of itself. Many will go back and forth. Knowledge will increase. He just described global travel, which was not a thing when Daniel was told this. And he described the increase of knowledge, the information age. Global travel and the information age. Hmm. Interesting. Sir Isaac Newton, writing about Daniel's prophecy, said, If this is to be, man must eventually travel at 50 miles an hour. (laughs) And of course, in 1984, Newton's hypothesis was confirmed by Sammy Hagar as he belted out, I can't drive 55! (laughs) 
seal this up until this time. You know, the key that unlocks the book of Revelation in the Hebrew Scriptures is the book of Daniel. We're going to see that as we go through. It opens up, it explains things, it works together. God intended it that way. The key to unlocking Revelation. Now, after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven, as the world turned into this age, the time of concealment and sealed prophecy was over. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, for to us God revealed revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Paul says, at the turning of the tide, at the turning of the age, Jesus said, all concealment is over. Now it's time for revelation. Now it's time for my people to know what's coming because the time is near. And so, the revelation is the unveiling. It's not the book of the shelving. It's not the book of hide it away. It's not the calupto. It's the apocalupto. Now, with that in mind, I want to show you something quickly here that that Jesus gives a simple guide through this entire book. It's a guide for unpacking, if you will. And it's verse 19. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to John, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And there's your three-part outline. Write the things which you have seen, John, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Write the things, John, which you have seen. What had John seen? By the time Jesus said that, Jesus glorified The vision of Jesus Christ that opens up this remarkable book. And John describes what he had seen. He he does exactly what Jesus says. He writes the things which he had seen, and he had seen Jesus. So that's part one of the outline. Very simple. The person of Jesus Christ, chapter one. But Jesus said also, John, I want you to write the things which are. Well, that's the people of Jesus Christ. The things which are at that time when John was alive, what was going on? The people of Jesus. The church age, chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 1, the person of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, the people of Jesus Christ, which we will crack open in a couple of weeks, seven letters to seven actual, literal, historical churches along a Roman postal route there in Asia Minor with amazing prophetic significance. Well, how do you know that? Isn't that going beyond the literal word? No, it's not. Trust me on this. We'll see. But these seven letters to the seven churches were for seven specific churches, but they also are for the entire church. They also are for this church. They also cover in an amazing way the entire church age. And again, when we're done with this, you're going to look at it and go, yep, that's right. John, write what you've seen, the person of Jesus Christ. John, write the things which are the people of Jesus Christ. And he says, very clearly, note the language, and the things which will take place after these things. 
which is the prophetic plan of Jesus Christ picking up in chapter 4 and it runs to the end of the book. The three-part outline. After these things is a vital phrase in the study of Revelation, in the book of Revelation. After these things is meta-tauta. Let's say that with me. Meta-tauta. Try that. Meta-tauta. Meta-tauta is simply the phrase in the Greek, after these things. The first time we see the phrase in the letter is right here in verse 19. And the things which will take place after these things. So that's a marker. That's a marker for the after these things section of the book. For when the book begins in that section. How do you know that? Because the next time we see the phrase, turn over to chapter 4 verse 1 and note what he says. I love the turning of the pages of scripture. It's like the sound of many waters. He says in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, after these things. Greek, metatauta. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Well, that's interesting. Let me tell you something else about the book of Revelation. You hear about the church constantly between chapters 2 and 3. It's all about the church. It's written to the church. You see the word ecclesia used multiple times, and then all of a sudden in chapter 4, you don't see the word used again. Not once until Jesus comes with His bride in Revelation 19. The church is completely absent. Revelation 4.1, after these things, and we start into that section. We're going to hear this phrase, metatauta, again in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 5. Chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 19, verse 1. And chapter 20, verse 3. Don't write that down. I'm just making a point. Metatauta, after these things, becomes the mode of transportation. It just drives us right through the book. So that we can understand there is a chronology here. These things happen, and then after these things, this happens. And then after these things, this happens. It moves us forward chronologically through the book. The problem with allegorizing the book of Revelation is you can make it say anything you want. I mean, trust me, we could get really wacky in here if we wanted to. Let's just draw all kinds of pictures and we'll prove all kinds of bizarre theologies. And the most important thing, we'll make sure that the traditions of our church are born in this letter to prove that we're right and all the rest of the church is wrong. I'm being facetious, but people have done that. I've sat and listened to teachings on Revelation that were taught to prove a church tradition. And that's, that's so off. Book of Revelation takes us right through after these things. So here's, here's what we see. We see the things that John has seen. Jesus in chapter 1. We see the things which are the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And then beginning in chapters 4 and 5, suddenly we're in heaven. It's a beautiful, powerful scene in heaven. We see what's going on. Unveiled, we get a picture of heaven. And then, beginning in chapter 6, all the way through verse 18, after these things, the tribulation on earth. And it goes into great detail. We don't see the church again. During that entire time, the church is not even mentioned one time until she's the bride. And then after these things... Or as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 29, after the tribulation of those days, He returns with His saints to execute judgment. 
which Jude talked about in Jude 14 and 15. We see that happen in Revelation 19. And then he rushes in the millennial kingdom, chapter 20. And finally we get a glimpse into the bona fide, actual, literal, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. What I'm saying is this book is linear in progression. It's chronological. It's a prehistory of the end of history, ever onward, ever moving forward, like a great juggernaut rumbling on to the final return, rule, and reign of Jesus Christ unto all eternity. And it's not difficult to see it that way. Chapter 1, verse 19 is the unpacking guide for this trip. Back to verse 1. Note the recipients of the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. This is important. His bondservants. It's the word doulos. You Greek scholars know that. Doulos in the Greek, it it simply is the lowest form of slave in Greek culture. The doulos. He wrote it to his doulos, to his slaves. You might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that Jesus called us friends and no longer called us slaves. John 15, 15. So how now is this written to His slaves? I don't understand. Get this. Jesus does call us friends. That's His perspective. But we come to Him as servants. That's our perspective. And it is the right perspective to receive and understand this book. If you would receive, if you want to get all the blessings of this book, you do it as a servant. In the service of Jesus Christ, humbly, willing to do whatever He asks you to do, go where He wants you to go. Take Him at His word. Believe Him for what He says. It is the fool who says in his heart, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I don't know if any more foolish thing has ever been spoken. Gang, no one reigns in hell. No one reigns in hell. The devil doesn't reign in hell. All the jokes about Satan in hell with his clipboard checking on things, is not, it's not true. It doesn't work that way. When the devil gets thrown into hell, he will be in hell with everyone else who has ever rebelled against or rejected God. We take this as servants. When someone says, I'm not going to take it that way. I'm going to take it my way. What happens? Well, when God's servant Israel rejected Jesus as Lord and Messiah, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. What does Revelation mean? Unveiling. The unveiling. And Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Note that. You turn to the Lord. He doesn't say, whenever someone turns to their buddy, the veil is taken away. Whenever someone turns to God, his old pal, the veil is taken away. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, man, you can choose to remain Lord and Master of your life. We all have that option, I suppose. But let's be clear. The only way 
to get the unveiling, to, to understand the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ is by humble faith as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Those are the people to whom this letter, this book was written. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. How can he say that? <laughs> soon take place? Even with the correct dating of the book in 95 A.D., that's still over 1,900 years ago. That's a long time, man. Yeah, it is for you and me. In our perspective of the world and eternity, that seems a long time. You know, 1,900 years into heaven will be faster than that. Will be a blip. But let me explain this a different way. These things must soon take place. It was the summer of 1991, and a 15-seat prop plane with 20 passengers came rattling out of the sky across the blue waters of the Western Caribbean Sea and landed on a tiny little airstrip, the Juan Manuel Galvez International Airport. Okay, Siri, I'm not talking to you right now. That's funny. She's telling me about the Western Caribbean Sea. Just a minute while I deal with the beast. Like my wrist is talking to me. The end is near. Wow. Okay, so where was I? We landed on the island of Roatan. I think I've shared the story with a few of you before, but I soon learned there. I was a young youth pastor, and we had all of these kids, with 15 kids and five adults, and we land there, and I soon learn as we get out of this rat trap, I'm thankful that we're alive. And we go in and I call the hotel Casa de Lost Your Reservations and they had. So we didn't have anywhere to stay and up walks this seven foot tall islander. <laughs> the guy scared me to death. He had dreads down to his treads. And he goes, Mon, let me take you to a good place. Best on the island, Mon. And I'm like, Mon, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> but what choice did I have? We had nowhere to go. I'll take care of you, Mon. I'm sure you will. He's going to smoke us like joints. <laughs> so, so we all gather together there at, at the little airstrip, and, and these taxis pull up, and the kids start piling in, and I am surveying the taxis. 1970 Datsun wagons, shockless, rusted out, brakeless, windowless wonders. And the kids are piling in. Hey, we're going for a ride. And I'm going... If this ride doesn't kill us, their parents will. So we get in these taxis. Off we go, flying. And the further into the island we got, the faster we flew. I'm just sitting here thinking, third world island, third world island, third world island. We're going to die. And we pull up in front of this beautiful place, and and the rest of that story is for another time. But listen, listen. These things must soon take place. Another key word in the, in the revelation is soon. It's in taxi. In taxi. In the Greek. 
quickly, with sudden or rapid progression. We get the word in taxi, that's where we get our word tachometer. Tach. And a tachometer, of course, is, is that measure on our cars that, that measures RPMs. You, you, you push the gas a little bit and it goes zzzz. And it revs up really quickly. The word soon here is probably better translated quickly. These things must quickly take place. What he's saying here is that when the prophecies of this book begin to happen, they're going to happen fast. And you know, it fits the nature of God. That is exactly how God works. He will move really, really slow and intentionally and deliberately. We're freaking out. He's going at a snail's pace. He's laying the foundation. He's preparing what needs to be prepared. He's getting all his ducks in a row. And we're going, ah, come on, Lord, I need you now. I need your answer today. Why aren't you helping me immediately? And he's laying the foundation. And he's settling things. He's getting it all ready. Man, ask Abraham. Ask Moses. I just question, show of hands, how many of you have tended sheep for 40 years? I didn't think so. Ask David. David, who's anointed to be king of Israel. You know when he took the throne? Ten years later. Or ask Jeremiah, who had to watch his city fall apart, knowing there were promises of God that will be fulfilled out there somewhere. Ask all the prophets. Man, the Spirit of Christ in them told them something's coming and they were looking for when and why and how and they never saw it. Ask the people of faith who the book of Hebrews says they never had the fulfillment of their faith. So that it would only be fulfilled with you and with me together. God moves so slowly. He says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal It will not fail. We're freaking out. He says, though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. John and Lisa Adelot and Cheryl and I on Friday night went to Escape Anacortis. Have you heard of that place? It's it's like an escape room thing. You go in, you have one hour to figure out all the clues and get out of the room, right? I didn't want to do it. I told John, you know, as we're walking toward him, I'm saying, okay. I'm doing this to hang out with you guys. That's the only reason. You know, I'm 54 now. You know what an evening out with friends is to me? A nice, quiet dinner. It's like my brother. In a couple of weeks, we're going down to visit my parents, and Ron is dragging me to Knott's Berry Farm. I'm like, dude. (laughs) So so we go to Escape Anacortes, and I can't tell you anything about it, because you need to do it. It's a lot of fun. It was really fun. But we're in there, and at the very end, we get to this place where we have to read through these, these pages of this book to, to kind of put together what all's taking place and how do we get out of here. And so I'm re- reading the book, and I'm reading as fast as I can. And Cheryl told me later, you were driving me nuts. You were reading like a snail. I'm like, read it faster, faster, faster. I'm like, I don't want to miss anything. Go faster, faster. And we got out of that room. We had one hour to do it with a minute 35 left. Yeah, yeah. some of y'all are going to go do that and be like, we didn't get out. No, you didn't. Should have had us with you. Anyway, 
God does that. And, and, and it can be so frustrating for us in our lives, can't it? He's just moving slowly. And we're praying and we're laboring and we're interceding and we're on our knees and we're getting calluses and we're saying, God, why don't you answer? And He's just laying the foundation. But you know what happens? When He's ready, He moves in taxi. God jumps in a taxi. And He moves at breakneck speed. Jesus said in Luke 18.7, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them in taxi. Quickly. Romans 16.20, Paul writes, The God of peace will in taxi will soon, will quickly crush Satan under your feet. Hasn't happened yet, but when he starts to do it, it's going to be over fast, man. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, Paul writes. In Revelation 22, 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming in a taxi. I thought he was coming on a white horse. Yes, but he's coming in taxi. He's coming quickly. When the moment comes for him to come, he'll be here. And that's in taxi. And that's soon. To show His bond service the things which must soon take place. And when all this starts to unroll, it will unroll fast. Though it's taken us a long time to get here. When John received this vision, I would put it this way, the world was in first gear. My friends, things are revving up. Things are beginning to move and I think we're about to go into overdrive. The things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. I shared this just yesterday at our, at our gathering, which was fantastic. Great turnout. Had a wonderful time at Ray's. Um, hopefully, if we do that again next year, all of y'all ought to come. It was great. I just said all of y'all. <laughs> That's funny. Amen. There you go, Joe. That was for you. A little shout out to you, bro. <laughs> Yesterday we read this, and you know what you see right here? You see the chain of command. This revelation from God the Father, through Christ the Son, by His personal angelic envoy, to His bond slave, John, who testified to His church. So the word comes down, is passed along, is sent out, and in verse 3, tells us, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Hold on there, Speedy Gonzalez. I know you say that soon means quickly in a taxi. How do you explain the time is near? I mean, come on. Even again, if this was written in 95 AD, how do you explain that the time is near? Come back Wednesday night and I will. By the way, I need you to know this. And this is not a ploy on my part. It really truly isn't to try and force people to more church attendance. God's not concerned with church attendance. He's concerned with our heart. Church attendance, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, the apostles' teaching, all of that is to strengthen our hearts. That's why we do it. But I'm just telling you right now, the way that this study will go, if you don't come Wednesday, you will miss substantial amounts of Revelation. There's no other way I can do it. And I looked at it and I thought through, what if I just taught Revelation on Sunday and then 
taught something else on Wednesday night, and I'm not going to do that. So we're going to move through the Revelation. I will try and give major chunks on Sunday so that you can keep with it the best you can if you can't make it Wednesday night. But I just want you to know, have a heads up, Wednesday night is going to be vital in this particular study. You might want to block some time out of your calendar, if it's important to you. (laughs) Did you catch... Did you catch in verse 3 the change from singular to plural? Because he says, blessed is he, singular, who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. That is another vastly or vitally important thing here. The point is, he reads and they hear and heed. In other words, this book was meant for public proclamation. It was meant to be read aloud so that it could be heard and heeded too. God never intended for the book of Revelation to be shelved and ignored. He never intended for pastors to avoid it in the teaching of His Word in the church. He intended the book of Revelation as a book of proclamation. And if I could say any one thing to my fellow pastors in the church, it would be this. And by the way, there are many, many things which I learned from my fellow pastors where I am short and I am missing it. But the one thing I would say is, preach the Word. Genesis to Revelation, proclaim the Word of God. And with that, I would say, make public proclamation of the book of Revelation. And I have been remiss. Don't ever let me do this again. It's been 13 years since I've made public proclamation of this book. It will not be that long again, Lord willing. Like I said, we may never get out of this book. That's okay. But Lord willing, and we're here a while, this book needs to be proclaimed. This book needs to be studied more and more and often. And by, by the way, for you Bible scholars, one of the many early critical tests for what we call canonicity, which is whether or not a book should be included in the canon of Scripture, the, the Bible as we know it, one of the early tests was public proclamation. Was it a letter or a book or scripture that was read uh, publicly in the early church? Acceptance of the book or letter depended partially on that. And that's just one of many very critical uh, things that they used to determine what books would be in scripture and what would not. Public proclamation was on the list. It needs to be one that the church is hearing often and that we consider that important that we read it publicly so people can hear it and heed it. John wrote down the revelation for public proclamation and inspired inclusion in the New Testament. Now, last thing this morning. Of all the remarkable features of this marvelous book, it is the only one in the entire Bible to guarantee a blessing. A blessing to those who read it and to those who Hear it and heed it. For the one who reads it aloud. So take it. Read it aloud. Show up at work tomorrow morning and open up to Revelation chapter 1 and publicly proclaim (laughs) the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show. And you know, see how that goes. Let me know next week. (laughs) He who reads it and those who hear it and heed it are guaranteed. This is God's guarantee. Guaranteed blessing. Guaranteed blessing. Want to know why? 
Well, for one reason, because it brings to bear all the blessings of the book, the entire Bible. What's so exciting about this to me is we're now going to go through not just the book of Revelation as if that weren't enough. We're going to go through the entirety of Scripture because you have to to understand the book of Revelation. Prepare for 15 years of teaching in one study. Because that's what Revelation does. Over 500 allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures. And we will look at all of those as we go through. So prepare to travel the Bible in coming months. But note this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Blessed. There's a sevenfold blessing. They call them the sevenfold beatitudes of the revelation. The first is right here. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and those who heed. That's the first blessing. The second one. Revelation chapter 14 verse 13. Let me just read these to you. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Which means if you don't make it to the end of this study, you're still blessed. (laughs) If you die in the Lord. Blessed is anyone who dies in the Lord. Because at most you'll only die once. But you will live twice. See, that's what D.L. Moody said. One of my favorite phrases. I'll probably repeat it in this study. Those who are born once will die twice. Physical and spiritual death. Those who are born twice will only die once, if at all. So blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are those who hear and and heed this book, those who read it. Uh, The third blessing, Revelation 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Sidelight, Revelation 16, Jesus says, I come as a thief. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that he doesn't come as a thief to us. He doesn't come like a thief to the church because we're waiting for him. We're looking for him. We're ready for him. So when Jesus says in Revelation 16, Behold, I'm coming like a thief, it's because the church is gone. It's not there. He's talking to the world. And there will be those saved, get this, in the tribulation. It's a remarkable part of this study. Blessed are they who keep awake and keep their clothes on, ready to go when He calls. The fourth blessing, Revelation 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Because over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And then like bookends of blessing, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, and rolling out in chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who reads, or he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Blessed! Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. You know God wants to bless you. I think our world doesn't realize that. doesn't understand. God wants to bless. 
He is a good Father. The only question that remains is, do you want to be blessed? Can I ask a quick question before we conclude? How many of you listened through or were present in the last time we studied Revelation? See a show of hands. Okay. When we started that study, for all the rest of you, I'll just share this. I I had just gotten an e-card from a dear sister. It was my birthday. I just turned 41. And this e-card comes across and I open it up and it's this little sheep. And it's sitting there and, and, and it's darning a sock. And it's got socks on its feet. And they're darning a sock, socks on its feet. And all of a sudden a great wind comes up and blows the sheep right off the top of the hill and it spins around, lands at the bottom of the hill, and the socks fly everywhere, and it said, Happy birthday, bless your woolly socks off. <laughs> Listen, read, hear, and heed this book. Because if you do, God will bless your woolly socks off, sheep. He will bless us to no end. And the blessing is this, we get to see and hear and know Jesus Christ revealed as God and Savior. Do you know Him as Lord? God desires all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places be upon His people. God wants to bless. When He spoke this world into creation, it's because He wants to bless And God is looking right now into your life, personally and particularly, with blessing if you will receive Him as Lord and Savior. For some of us followers of Jesus Christ, we've been fighting that a little bit. Even the servants from every now and then will rise up in their flesh and want to be Lord of our own life. And that may be you. Maybe you've been fighting God on these things. And you really haven't been so much a servant as much as a master of your life. And I encourage you this morning to repent. And just return lordship where it belongs to Jesus and trust Him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never prayed, Lord, come and be my Savior, I invite you to do it today. If you've never been baptized because, well, you're the Master. The Master calls you. We're doing three baptisms today that I know of already. One's going to be back in the pond. If you haven't done that, why? And as I said even last week, if there is anything in your life that you're holding off, that you're putting off, you know God has told you to do it. You've you've heard Him, but you're not listening. Why don't you respond to Him this morning so that all of the blessings of God will be poured out on you. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that You move in us and among us. Lord, I am so blessed myself with this group of people, with our fellowship. I am so blessed to be surrounded by people who love You and love Your Word. So blessed, Lord, that on a daily basis I have people walking out the love of Christ right in front of me. I get to live this blessed life with the example of my brothers and sisters. And I'm thankful for that, Lord. And I'm thankful that You haven't stopped working on me and calling me to servitude and preparing me for Your kingdom as You're doing with us all. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that You will free us up to come to You. You're a good Father. And as Your Word tells us, You want to bless. So I pray that we will come and respond to You and trust You 
And Lord Jesus, do it your way and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.